Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. How do you get to say what you don't know you know? Is that why people write poems and things? But I don't know how she knew, how she heard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking about a selection of plays with Dr. Rowan Williams, who, of course, many of you will have known and already admired. He is a theologian, a poet, and as we shall learn today, a playwright, and also the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, today, we are, we are going to discuss uh, three plays that he's recently released with Slant Books called Shake Shaft and Other Plays. And we will talk about uh, the role of arts in helping us uh, discover what is true, but we don't know how to say, and, and the role of words and how they fail us and succeed for us. And I couldn't be more delighted or honored to welcome Dr. Rowan Williams onto the show. Thank you very much indeed, Joy. It's a real privilege to be with you. So um, I was so delighted when I saw you releasing this collection of plays. I think people know you for many things. Uh, they know you as a theologian and, and even as a poet, but I don't think prior to now you had published a collection of plays. Is that right? That's right. Yes, I, I came to this late. Um, I suppose about 15 years ago when I started working on, on the Shakeshaft play. Did you have a history with theatre in your past? Confession time, yes, I did, yes. When I was a schoolboy and a student, I did spend quite a bit of time doing drama. And um, yes, well, one of my memories of being a graduate student is actually playing Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons, which was a oh. tremendous joy. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful to know. Yes, I know, I, I spent quite a lot of time in my youth in plays. Did you like the acting more or did you do directing or did you fancy yourself a playwright back then at all? I don't think I thought of myself as a playwright. I think I just enjoyed acting. Um, I was completely useless in any practical sense with directing or whatever. My son, who's, who's an actor and a writer, seems to have picked up some of the acting gene, but um, he's, he's got a much more organisational flair. <laughs> so you started writing Shakeshaft um, 15 years ago, you said. About that, um, yes. And now... I've read all these plays and it seems like they are all kind of tied together, although mm. quite distinct. So did you write them close together or was it over a period of time? Mm. It's a good question. And I'm interested that you find they have a, a kind of unity because that sort of reassures me in a way, so long as they don't all sound exactly the same. But um, no, I started writing Shakespeare and then rather to my surprise had this approach from Josie Rourke, um, then at the Bush Theatre in London, who was in charge of this project to produce a sequence of plays to celebrate the fourth centenary of the King James Bible, 66 mm -hmm. books. And she'd asked a, a very wide range of people to write very short plays, half hour plays, yeah. uh, each on one of the books of the Bible. So I started working on that as Shakespeare was still rumbling on in the background. The, the third play, The Flat Roof of the World about David Jones, the artist and poet, that came later and it came partly um, I suppose, as a result of doing more work, reviewing a new biography of David Jones, continuing to think and write a bit about him as a, as a poet, 
So, yes, the, the first two, Shakespeare and the Lazarus play, mm. um, they, they were more or less inter, interwoven in terms of mm. chronology. The other one comes later. Mm. That's very interesting. Now, I think it's worth describing. Um, let's start with Shakespeare because the premise of that is quite wonderful. Um, tell us, tell us, tell mm. us the premise of Shakespeare and where you discovered that and how it mm. birthed in your imagination. A sort of disclaimer to start with: anybody who writes a play about Shakespeare is really heading for a, a major fall in all kinds of ways, and there we are. You just take the risk, but. I've always been a, a huge Shakespeare enthusiast. I've, I've written a bit about him and go back to him again and again and again. I take part in an annual Shakespeare retreat um, in which a group of about 50 of us get together and spend a week reflecting together on one of Shakespeare's plays. So it, it's you know, very much in the, in the blood. Um, but I, I also had some interest in Shakespeare's own history and Shakespeare's own convictions. And many years back, I, I read um, Ernest Honingman's book about the young Shakespeare, in which he advances the theory that Shakespeare, as a very young man, spent some time in Lancashire. Now, we know that there's um, mention in a will from 1580-something, um, a will of Alexander Houghton, who was a big landowner in Lancashire. And it mentions the gift, the bequest, of some musical instruments and playing clothes, theatrical equipment, to two men called Will Shakeshoft and Fulk Gillum. Now, Will Shakeshoft, it's, it's quite tempting to think, hmm, that reminds me of something. Mm. And well, the evidence builds up in a certain direction in that um, Houghton was a, a major Catholic landowner, a recusant. He was under suspicion from the authorities because he didn't conform to the, the state religion. A local family, the Cottons, provided both a Jesuit martyr of the period and a schoolmaster who taught in Stratford-upon-Avon. We know there are other connections between um, the Lancashire Circle and some of the powerful Catholic networks at the time, including um, the Earl of Derby, with whom Shakespeare has connections. And there's that as I say, that faintly familiar name, Will Shakeshaft. The second bit of the, the jigsaw is that when the great Jesuit missioner and eventually martyr Edmund Campion came back to England to pursue the mission, he came with um, Cotton, the Lancashire huh. neighbour of the Houghtons, and they travelled a bit together. We know that Campion spent some time in Lancashire, and stayed with the Houghton family at one of their residences. Well, you put two and two together and make 22. So <laughs> <laughs> the theory is Shakespeare is indeed William Shakespeare, coming from a, a recusant background, a Catholic background in Stratford, um, spending some time with the Houghton family in Lancashire as a, a tutor and dog's body in the household, mm -hmm. making some contacts there, including some of the contacts that helped him later on. Mm -hmm. But if, if he was at Houghton Hall, if he was there in 1580, 1581, if Campion was there at the same time, what might a future martyr 
and a future literary genius, if I had to say to each other. That's how the play began. Historically, it's all very, very shaky, and there's a lot of controversy about it, and probably most serious Shakespeare scholars don't accept the identification. But actually, you know, I'm not writing as a Shakespeare scholar. I'm just interested in, in imagining here what, mm. what might have been said and done. Mm. But it's a wonderful imaginative supposal. And, um, and I, I like that you place it with this very kind of young Shakespeare when he's kind of finding his footing, not just, um, not just in his faith, but in his sense of vocation. Mm. And mm. there's this, um, between Campion and Shakespeare, there's this sense of Shakespeare hearing all of these voices and wanting, wanting them to be harmonized but also. And I think you see this so much in Shakespeare. It's just this passionate love and delight and almost obsessive fascination with human nature and yes. all the different yes. particularities of the ways that people are. Um, and this in your play inculcates in him this almost kind of, he almost feels that he must be a little bit agnostic, almost out of duty to, to not, to not um, dishonor the many mm. varied voices that he hears in the world. That's a very good way of putting it, Joy. I, I think that's, that's what I was trying to convey. Something of that spirit in the artist, which almost has to bracket deep personal conviction in order to be host to all the different voices. Even in somebody like Dostoevsky with a, mm. a sort of fantastically passionate personal conviction about Christian faith. When he's writing, he has to let every voice loose. Yes. He has to let, you know, let the bear garden emerge, <laughs> as it were, and, and quite deliberate. And thinking about Shakespeare, I feel that, in a way, that's how he must have felt, whatever his personal convictions, and we really don't know what he thought. Mm. Except, of course, there are moments in his plays and moments, even in the sonnets, where you get a flash of insight about Christian truth, which, mm. which is a bit staggering really mm. I, I wrote something a few years ago on, on prayer in Shakespeare mm. ways in which some of Shakespeare's characters approach praying and um, the fact that Claudius in Hamlet tries to articulate a prayer of penitence and finds that it it won't work he can't find mm. it in his heart really to be sorry there's the prayer of Henry V before the Battle of Agincourt where he's he's aware that he is king because of a history of sin and rebellion and, and violence. He's trying to come to terms with that. There's Angelo in Measure for Measure discovering that he can't pray because he's obsessed with lust for Isabella. Shakespeare knew something about praying and what it was and what it wasn't. You know, you mentioned Dostoevsky, and I think this is the power of an artist, is that when you read Brothers Karamazov, you have this sense that you're not being given propaganda, right? We think about what's the difference between art and propaganda. And I think one of the differences is that Dostoevsky was trying to give the fullest, fairest, keenest, and most kind of in-focus picture that he could of these two different realities. Mm. Um, and, and allowing the reader, trusting the reader, trusting the people who are engaging with the art to be able to take what they need to from it. And, and in, in a way also, of course, trusting God, you might say. Yes. Trusting that if there is a ground underneath this, that people will find it. That's right. And that... The reality of God and the reality of faith is strong enough to withstand whatever you can throw at it. All right, mm. says Dostoevsky, let's make this as difficult as we possibly can. Let's mm. pile on the, the psychological complexity and the moral emptiness 
and the perversity and the cruelty. Let's just pile it on and see if there's still a God left at the end of it. Because yeah. if God is the God I take him to be, there will be. Yes, Flannery yes. O'Connor is another case in point, mm. I think, in yeah. piling on the, the horrors so that we, we see how fundamentally tough and resilient the reality yeah. underneath is. Yes. Something else I really enjoyed about this particular play in the set was that it felt very relatable to our present moment. And that I think sometimes we forget when we think back on the Reformation and that kind of era, we think there are all these very strong convicted people mm. and, you know, and they read their Bibles much more than we did. And, mm. you know, but there is this sense that that would have been a very confusing and fracturing time um, and, and not a settled time. You know, it took a long time for mm. these lines to be, to kind of settle. And and so there's a sense in which that disruption we might feel, you know, as we might call it the postmodern age, where there's all these different voices, was not so different from that moment. And in a way, I, I found that that was a really hmm. um, interesting setting in which to explore that kind of trying to find the ground underneath, underneath reality. I'm very glad you picked that up, because that certainly was in my mind. Part of what Campion, as a, a priest and theologian, is saying to Shakespeare is, you know, it's all very well, this psychological exploration. But fundamentally, the problem that you and I both face is that we're stuck in a situation where so many people feel they've got to make themselves up. They don't mm. know who they are. Mm. Um, time was, their faith would have told them who they were mm. and released them to be who they were. Mm -hmm. But now we're stuck with rival religious convictions, mm. complicated political unsettlement, and people feeling this burden fair hearing, so to speak. I, I don't want either of them just to be um, mouthpieces for you. I want them to be listening to each other and understanding the questions yes, and respecting yes. one another in that. But I think that the question that they are both in a way dealing with is, is this one of how do we know who we are? Mm. And Shakespeare, of course, gives that um, astonishingly vivid expression again and again in his plays in, in King Lear. Who is it who can tell me who I am? Mm. I will confess that I was watching many YouTube videos in preparation for this uh, for this conversation. It reminds me a bit of you did a TED talk a while back on Loris, which is also oh, kind of yes, yes. This this exploration of it's the combination between trying to be able to tell our own stories mm -hmm. and then the stories that are told to us. Mm -hmm. And that was I loved the passage in um, in Shakespeare where uh, I can't remember the character's name, but he's talking about kind of the pageants and the morality plays. Yes, yes. And that when everyone was, was involved in those, there was a sense of, um, he talks about as a mirror that, you know, everyone was telling the same story yes, and yes. that I'm going around and I'm looking at all these different, and I love, I love the pageants. I did a bit of research in the morality plays in my PhD, mm -hmm. but this sense that it was kind of supposed to help orient you in the world so that you knew mm -hmm. what story you were in. That's right. That's right. Yes. And, um, but that that's quite different from, from maybe sometimes the capacity to have to be able to tell our own stories, you know, um, and that that, and that is something that maybe isn't as, we don't have that sense of unity and the ability to enter into another story as much, maybe as a medieval morality playgoer might have. That's right. That's right. And one of the things that Shakespeare is, is saying in the play is, you can't just go back to the Middle Ages. We've, we've discovered ways of talking about and understanding ourselves, which we can't unlearn. Mm -hmm. The question now is how do, we, how do we make that 
or lead that back into something that's integrative, not just fragmenting and, and destructive. It, it reminds me a bit of Owen Barfield, you know, talks about mm. the original participation that, you know, yep. used to be in, but that uh, we've been this kind of porous relationship with nature, but that actually our modern ways of thinking and abilities to describe ourselves and describe what's inside actually is a, is a progress, even if it feels alienating sometimes. And so exactly. we have to figure out yes. how do we how do we come back to um, experiencing meaning um, without kind of an idealization of the past. That's right. That's right. And and Shakespeare as you know, uniquely great artist with, I do believe, a deep Christian hinterland mm. is one way or another working away at that. Mm, yes. So let's talk a bit about um, the roof of the world. And mm. so one of the things that seems to me to kind of bring these plays together is this desire to get to the get to the bottom of things. Mm. And with Shakespeare, you have this sense that he's doing it with words, right? Um, you know, that he's He's trying with his words and with his descriptions of people, he's trying to get out what's inside and, and know that it's yeah. real and then always kind of falling short and not feeling quite satisfied. Um, but with David Jones, I felt that you des described him kind of as doing that with images, that there's this sense. Mm -hmm. And I loved that you used the, I think this was an intentional double meaning lines that you're trying to find the lines that, that draw across and, mm -hmm. um, and, so tell us a bit about David Jones, because I've just discovered David Jones in the last year, and he's really oh. a remarkable person. Yes. Um, but for people who may not know David Jones, tell us a bit about him and his, his life. Yes, um, he was born in London of um, an English mother and a Welsh father. And he, he was really fascinated by his Welsh heritage as he grew older. And I, I call him sometimes an, an Anglo-Welsh writer, which is perhaps not strictly true, but he, he's certainly an English writer with profound Welsh affiliations. He became really fascinated by the, the whole history of Welsh um, mythology and classical Welsh literature, and that's all woven into his, his work. He served in the First World War and served in the trenches and was wounded and was part of the, the unspeakable horror of the Battle of Manette's Wood, where thousands and thousands and thousands of people from the Welsh um, divisions in the army were killed in a single day. Um, and that haunted him all his life. After the war, he became a Roman Catholic. Um, he spent some time with Eric Gill, the, the sculptor and letterist, briefly engaged to Gill's daughter Petra, which is part of what the play looks at. And as a, a visual artist and as a poet, He's equally complex, equally demanding. He, he was a brilliant watercolorist. Um, he did this astonishing lettering, sort of monumental lettering inscriptions. And also he writes these long, long poetic reflections. His first great work in parenthesis is about his time in the trenches in the First World War. Mm -hmm. But it's also about what lies behind that. The, the suffering and chaos of the trenches opens up a whole history of violence and conflict and also of sacrifice and redemption. Mm -hmm. So the, the image of the crucified, you might say, is, is woven into, in parenthesis, without ever quite coming to the surface. Later on, um, his other long published work, Anathemata, is really about the mass. It's about how the entire history of human culture converges on that moment and into that 
comes his own family history, English and Welsh, the history of, of Britain and of Europe, the, the tale of Troy, the biblical history, above all, the Last Supper and the Crucifixion. And it is, well, almost impossibly dense work, so full of illusion, so full of um, image. But it's, it's the first of his that I actually encountered when I was a teenager and I was completely bowled over by it. He goes on um, as a, visu a visual artist as well as a, a poet, but increasingly the, the psychological damage, both of the war and of the ending of his relationship with Petra Gill, almost, almost immobilizes him. He, he more and more wouldn't go out, wouldn't meet people, desperately withdrawn and fearful man. And yet everyone who knew him remembered him as the soul of gentleness and, and of courtesy and, and kindness. Um, and you have this sense of a, a really painfully vulnerable figure shrinking more and more into, into the space of little boarding houses in North London and nursing homes. And it's, a, it's a, a sad story. And yet you don't overall, I think, get from his letters and his work a sense of sadness. Mm. Certainly there's a pathos, but also a richness, which, which is, to my mind, almost unique in 20th century British writing and, and also visual work. So complex, complex figure. Mm. Yes, and the play, the play beautifully kind of focuses on two, you kind of have two timelines of his life, you know, when he was mm. young and, and engaged to Petra and then when he's older. And I think what, um, when I was reading it, I was thinking about time, I guess, because it has those kinds of two different, mm. two different eras of his life and the way that trauma or a terrible thing that happens kind of messes with your sense of time because there's a sense in which you you take what is in the past yeah. with you into the future and it's never quite resolved. I think you're, you're right. I'm interested in the play in the long-term effect of trauma. And it's it's a very notable thing that in Jones's last writings, many of his letters in the last years of his life, he's still going over the events of the Battle of Mamet's Wood mm. in 1916. He's still working at the memory of that trauma. And it struck me that one way of approaching a play about him would be to see how that, that kind of foundational wound in his life was what was reopened by the different traumas and the different tragedies that he experienced. So yes, it, it was a bit more um, formally unconventional than Shakespeare, because I wanted to get that double exposure feeling. Mm. Jones of the 1950s and Jones of the 1920s, <clears throat> as it were, laid on top of one another. And it felt, it felt risky in some ways exploring this because um, not everyone will be aware. Eric Gill's reputation is a very, um, very much shadowed one. Uh, we know that Gill was, um, sexually predatory to a, an extraordinary extent that he he abused two of his daughters <clears throat> and that yes his his private life was uh, eyebrow raisingly complex to put it mildly and petra was was abused by her father now she in later life acknowledged this and 
almost said she she hadn't been very much damaged by it. She could see it was it was a bad thing, but didn't feel that it had wrecked her life. Well, you know, one one thinks pun, <laughs> but I I find myself left with the question. I, I don't quite know what Petra would have felt. But what, did did Jones did David Jones know anything about this? Did he sense anything about this? Because you'd think that a a horrific experience of abuse like that would somehow come through. So that was the risky area, treading in all those um, areas which are most sensitive, most neurologic for our present day culture. And also trying, and this, this was a challenge, trying to find a voice for Petra that would be honest and convincing. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know, yeah. hard work, it was hard work. No, I found the play really engaging. And I think one of the things that struck me about Petra was that um, it kind of gets back to that sense of our capacity to tell our own story. And you know, there's a sense that yes. when we hear that, we think, well, that just cannot be that. I mean, it's so horrendous. But maybe that was a part of her telling her story in a way that allowed her to make it through the world. Yeah, that's, that's right, I think. And I get the sense that Petra was a, an exceptionally strong woman. Mm. Um, she she married, she had children, she she emerges in later life as a, a rather formidable character. Mm. And I wanted something of that formidable quality mm. to come through in her. Um, mm. And also a kind of, what I sense in her, a kind of irony, a kind of deflationary realism <laughs> in the middle of all these hypercharged artistic egos around her mm. um I, I i like what i know of her petra is such a strong name you know a rock um and that kind of comes across in her in her character i feel like that kind of strength and fortitude and irony yes 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 i'm glad it it comes through um yes the, the name is not insignificant absolutely Mm, yeah. And she, I think she is also meant to be um, a thread in the play of a sort of steady honesty mm. in the middle of all the extravagance and the complexity and the torment around mm. her. There's, there's a, a really anchored quality mm. in her, at least so, so I, I hoped there, there would be. Mm -hmm. and that... So she's, she's contrasted a bit with... Um, the the other female figure who's based rather loosely on somebody who the Jones was very close to in the 1950s, who was a very charming, delightful, slightly scatty Welsh um, Welsh woman who's who's in fact um, an athlete and an actress and a broadcaster and a very extrovert figure, and you know she's she's meant to be and obviously was a very, very charming and delightful person. And Petra looks at her with a slightly wry smile and mm. thinks, well, it'd be nice if it was so simple. <laughs> yes, that's quite a lot of things uh, to be all at once, a broadcaster and an actor and an athlete. Um, yeah, no, I, and it's interesting because that character, I guess is supposed to be around the same age as Petra in the past, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so seeing their kind of, their difference, their differences, and their differences in relating to David because he's different ages and different kind of you know oh. now he's famous and, but as we all know being famous doesn't make you any more um, stable in the world necessarily. Um, that brings up something that I thought was interesting in the play, um, 
also is so if you know if you're looking at these ongoing effects of trauma a part of which is kind of this carrying the past with you into the present made me wonder um and then you see Petra who you know kind of seems to in some ways it seems like she kind of wipes the dust off her shoulders and charges forward with as much bravery and candor as she can and it makes me wonder do you think that art is something that helps us retell our stories with with things like trauma or do you think it's something that can also keep us in the past or do you think that's an unnecessary boundary to draw well you you put your finger on what i think is an absolutely fundamental human dilemma mm. we need to tell our stories because if we can't speak of mm. what we've endured then it it festers and eats mm. away on the other hand if we can only ever speak about the past mm. we remain trapped with it and i think that that is exactly what what art tries to negotiate mm. how do we speak about our our traps and our traumas mm. without just recycling them mm. and the point of i've written a bit about this here another point of literary tragedy as mm. as a genre is how do we speak about the past so that we're not paralyzed mm. how do we how do we tell the story of the most appalling and almost unspeakable suffering mm. without that just filling filling the horizon for us and in a way of course that is what the sacramental life of the church mm. seeks to do it seeks to tell us our story as as wrecked and sinful and destroyed and ravaged mm. and also as wreckers and destroyers and ravagers to tell us that story confronting us with the ultimate cost of that mm. in the death of christ and to say that's all real and it's not the end mm. that happened and it's not the last word mm. and there's a word spoken now into that history which doesn't wipe it out doesn't cancel the pain mm. but transfigures mm. and is the last word yeah. um yes i think that's beautiful and that relates i think to the very to the last play which it sounds like mm. you wrote closer to the beginning um, which is, tell us a bit about Lazarus. It's, it is in some ways the most enigmatic, but I think mm. really is focusing on that sense of how do we make sense of God having this last word and it meaning yes. something to us. Yes, you're quite right. Um, well, I was given the choice of which of the books of the Bible I'd like to write a play about. Um, <laughs> imagine that's not, not a, an easy choice, but I, I thought let's, let's look at St. John's gospel. That's the text I personally go back to most often and most mm -hmm. eagerly and if there was one story that i really wanted to explore mm -hmm. it would be the raising of lazarus from the dead so that's what i settled on mm -hmm. and what i tried to do was to have a kind of rather arm's length dramatization of the story in the mm -hmm. gospel but also interwoven with that a modern inquirer mm -hmm. if you like who's stumbled across the, something from from the story and is trying to make sense of it so it begins with this um, modern person talking about going to a funeral church of england funeral and hearing the uh, the priest begin with i am the resurrection and the life says the lord and 
as people sometimes do in church, if they're not very used to church, he thinks, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> I am the resurrection. And so it's really very much a play about words, about the word resurrection and how what it means to say, I am the resurrection. Mm. It's a meditation on how some words really transform and bring life. Mm. And the cost of that and the weight of that. Mm. And one of the images that runs through that little piece is hearing words, certain kinds of words, as if they were distant thunder, as if it were the sound of things falling over in the attic. Mm. As thunder sometimes, find, you know, the sound of empty boxes falling over in an attic is what thunder sometimes sounds like. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to weave that in and have that image there, the sort of distant massiveness mm. of the word of God. Mm. I, I love that. And I love it ends with the, the passage at the very end of John where it says, I can't think the exact words, but, you know, if, if, if I were to try to tell you everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Hmm. There yes. we go. And I loved that because, you know, it is a play about words. And I think in many ways, all these plays are about words and our need to, to narrate, our need to tell things, but the ways in which that falls short of getting to that ground of being, which is too much, too, too big to capture in words. But that sense of it, it that, that verse in a way kind of restores words as well, because it says, mm. you know, if I were to write everything Jesus did, it would fill all the books in the world, which has this sense that no book will have enough, but you should keep writing books. Keep, keep at it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As Samuel Beckett famously said, try again, fail, fail better. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, um, and I think that's, I think that's a wonderful thing. Cause I think sometimes we can despair of words. We can think, yes. well, um, we've said everything and we haven't found it yet. So we must, we must give up. But do you think that one of the roles of the artist is kind of to restore words and to continue to help people? Exactly, yes. Um, to restore some confidence and confidence in some gratitude for mm-hmm. language. T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets says that his task is to purify the dialect of the tribe. Mm. And you, you work at words so that they do the best they can. Hmm. The best they can is not capture and dominance, getting on top of the world and controlling Hmm. it. The best that words can do is to produce a new reflection, a new perspective, a new way of seeing connections, Hmm. and a new way, therefore, of connecting ourselves with the world we're in and with the world's maker at the end of the day. So... You keep trying because you keep trying to connect, to be connected. And that's that's the essence of language. In the beginning was the word, says mm. St. John's Gospel. And in that word, everything is made. All connections are established mm. because God communicates and connects through the everlasting word. And I think what strikes me that too is that connection is between one thing and another. And there's always space between the things that are connected. Yes. And that a part of the gift of language is that it kind of breaks open, that you notice that there is something between what is said and the two things that are trying to connect. And then in that in that very rupture is, mm-hmm. is an invitation to further connection and further meaning. That's right. 
That's right. So you, someone says something, somebody else answers, and the answer doesn't close down but opens up. Hmm. It's and so the, what you say becomes what you then talk about. And instead of becoming just a, a sort of self-referential vicious circle, it's a sort of opening spiral. It circles round and round, getting wider and wider. Mm, yes, that is. A, and it's a wonderful thing to think of, you know, this cosmos we're in is being established by the word. It's this kind of ongoing opening up conversation. Yes, yes. Further and further. And I yes. even think of that on a very... Um, I was listening, I occasionally, I occasionally will read physics books. I, I get about 20% of it and most of it doesn't go in. But this sense, when you, when you read it, you begin to have this sense of even at the, the, the closest parts of the universe that we can see, there's this sense of relationship and order and conversation. Yes. Um, and that is a very comforting thing. Yep, that's right. Um, because I, th I think in, in the way that a lot of physicists write these days, there is that sense that what's going on is a set of fairly elementary coordinates mm -hmm. whose combinations and recombinations just go on circling, multiplying, filling out. Um, and it's the last thing, the most, yes, it's as far as possible from being a mechanical picture. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, it's ridiculous that people think that a scientific picture of the world has to be mechanical. On the contrary, it's all about um, improvisation, innovation, um, unexpected, unpredictable response mm -hmm. and adjustment, and every bit of it constantly sort of springing into response to every other bit as, as it all unfolds. It's, uh, yes, you're, you're right. It's, it's a vastly exciting world, I think, for anybody who, who believes that the world is not just a, a mechanism. Indeed. Yeah. Well, and I think that that art and poetry helps us. I think that that way of thinking of the world as mechanical is is a way of thinking about the world. You know, it's not objectively the way the world is. And I think that studying physics is one way to discover that it's not not that way. But engaging with poetry and art also helps us kind of unpick those ways of thinking about the world that are more mechanical or are more um, that close down rather than open up conversations. <clears throat> you know. So I have a question for you. Have you seen any of these plays performed? Yes, I have. Um, I've seen Shakespeare performed and it's had three or four productions here and there, but mm -hmm. I've only seen one. And I, I must say, I was really delighted to see it because it, it helped me to see what did and didn't work. It helped mm -hmm. me to make a few adjustments and say, yeah, that goes on a bit. That needs a bit of breaking up. <laughs> that makes sense. It also made me think, and I remember this very particularly on, on the evening, mm. two actors in that production, one of them who was playing the part of Meg Critchlow, the uh, embittered young woman who's Alexander Houghton's disinherited daughter. Mm. And I thought in every scene, oh yes, absolutely, that is exactly what I imagined. My word, yes. <laughs> and then the actor playing Alexander Houghton himself, mm. I thought, you know, that's not what I intended, but it makes sense. <laughs> I hadn't heard the line that way, but you could do that. Mm. And I, I realized there was more, more to the character than I'd, I'd thought. Mm. I, I don't know what other people who write plays feel, but I, I would guess there must be quite a bit of that in, in anyone watching a script of their own. The sort of, oh yes, and the, 
good lord <laughs> reaction. <laughs> um, yes yeah um, so yes i i enjoyed that and it, people told me maybe it's a bit wordy for a stage play but it, it's not a complete disaster um so as i said it's had a couple of um outings in, indeed it had one outing in Houghton Hall itself in Lancashire, in the place oh, where did it set. I wish I could have seen that, but there we are. Then um, the Lazarus play was performed in London as part of this cycle of 66 books. Mm. And um, that, was, that was a very satisfying production. Josie Rourke, who'd overseen the entire mm. project, actually directed that herself, along with a handful of other plays. And, mm in the, the group and I, I just have the greatest respect for Josie mm. as a director and as someone who thinks through um, and I've done a little bit of work with her since we we had a lot of discussion um, when she did a production of Shakespeare's Measure for Measure in mm. London about three years ago and she got me to come and spend, spend a day with the cast talking about Measure for Measure which was very exciting. Um, so yes, I was, I was thrilled to have somebody of such quality working on on the play. And then um, the David Jones play, I haven't seen on stage, it hasn't been performed on stage, but a draft of it was given a, a dramatised, a sort of rehearsed dramatised reading mm. in private in London with some professional actors. And that was, again, very helpful because that showed me, again, where the weaknesses were in the draft. Mm. And that I hadn't got the proportions right somehow in the exposition. I needed to, to work harder. My son, who, as I said, is, is in the theatre business, also gave me some very good advice on that, saying he wasn't quite sure where the, the centre of gravity was in the play and I needed to mm. bring that out. So I, you know, I, I did some more work and I shall be interested if anybody ever wants to do a, another reading of it because I, I think it works a bit better now, but... Um, that is, I suppose, what you what you expect from stage production, because it's one thing to be writing in the study, mm -hmm. even when you can hear the words mm -hmm. in your ear. Um, you need to see it as part of a sort of fully realised physical interaction on mm. the stage before you know whether it works or not. I guess. Yes, that makes sense. Well, and theatre is such an interesting form of art because it really is. Isn't it? It's storytelling, but it's also this. It, yeah, it's very interesting, different when you think about it from many other forms of art uh, and that it's live, it changes every time you see it, you know. Um, yeah. Um, so did you get to kind of form and the, this version of the plays, is, is, is it working back from those kind of revisions of getting to see yes. some of those things perform live? Yeah, very much, yes. One of the interesting things about that is, um, is the time that drama takes and as you say, it's, it's a, a unique form of mm -hmm. art in, in the sense that the time it takes is the time it takes. You know, it's mm -hmm. the two hours traffic of our stages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so people often point to the fact that in a play, a film, a novel, there, there's always that sense of proportion that has to be observed if it's going to work. You need to have a climax or a shift somewhere around the two-thirds plus mm. 
time scale. And people relate it, of course, to the golden section in art, you know, the, the perfect proportion in an artistic work, which tells you where they, the, the visual breaks come. Yeah. And so with, with the passage of time. And I think um, in the, the earlier drafts of that play, I hadn't been thinking hard enough about that. So that pushed me to, to work at getting that elusive rhythm, getting sort of critical or turning point mm. at the right moment. In this case, you know, the realization on David's part that Valerie, the young woman he's fascinated and rather obsessed by is going to marry somebody else and suddenly realizes that he's lost somebody again. Mm. Wanted to place that at the best point and it wasn't the first time around I, I missed that, I got that wrong. Well, I think it is very hard until you've actually seen it being performed on stage. I, mm. I have written one, well, I've actually written many plays, but I've only had one play performed. And I actually, we, um, I have met you once before and you were speaking and I was the playwright. Um, it was the London Encounter. Um, yes, of course. Yes. I think that would have been six Three, years ago. Six years ago. Right. Five or six. Yeah. Um, okay. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I do remember it is just such a, a different experience at being in your head and then seeing somebody mm. with a real face and a real body and a real voice saying the things yes. out loud in real time. Um, and everyone is, is, it's also a very strange experience to go, all of the people in this room are, are held captive to whatever has been in my imagination. <laughs> um, yes. Well, I was curious, I wanted to ask you about that play particularly, why you chose to make it a play rather than a novel or, or a book story. Mm. I think because I'm, I've, I've never tried writing a novel mm. and I'm no good at plot. Mm. I think I can character and I can perhaps do dialogue, but I can't do plot. Mm. And I wanted to do something with voices. I didn't want mm. to be expounding. I'd, uh, it sounds a bit uh, precious to put it this way, but the plays come by listening. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of listening. What, what does that voice sound like? What is that sentence structure? sound like and and great swathes of shakeshaft in particular started simply as writing down dialogue just writing mm -hmm. dialogue and then as as it took shape thinking when that, where does that fit mm -hmm. and looking at my early notes too for the david jones play i can mm -hmm. see that what immediately kindled my imagination was so what would they say to each other mm -hmm. starting with this this mm -hmm. point this insight this exchange and then putting it together after that. So, no, I wasn't really tempted to go for the novel. Mm. And I think I, I think I was also writing what I would like to see and hear, mm. what I would like to read. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best things are often written that way. Um, so. <laughs> yes. Do you think you will write more plays? I don't know. I've, I've got a vague idea for one, but... Um, would you want to tell us or shall we keep it a secret? Well, another of the figures I, I'm fascinated by and would love to write a bit more about is um, St. Teresa of Avila. Um, and I wrote a little book about her some years ago and have gone on being very enthusiastic indeed about her as a teacher. But I, I'm intrigued by the complexity of her relationship with the church in her day and the issues of power and freedom that she's negotiating 
with such skill and such mm-hmm. such deftness. But it's not quite there. I've got some thoughts. Oh, well, I do hope that you write that because I enjoyed reading these plays and I really do like Teresa of Avila so much. And she's such an interesting character as a person in the world. As a person, yes, as a person. As somebody who who comes with if you like any number of warning signs flashing in her own day. She's she's an articulate and intelligent woman, which on the whole in Catholic Spain in the 16th century wasn't a very good idea. She's also a woman of Jewish family. Yes. Which makes her really, really vulnerable. Mm. Um, and she keeps that very, very quiet, mm. understandably. But it comes through in what she writes. I've been interested in more recent times since writing the book about her, um, written a couple of things about her use of the Bible and the way in which she, the way in which she appropriates the imagery around Mary Magdalene mm. to to think through the contemplative life mm. as a life of risky and embarrassing dedication. Mm. Of course, she you know she accepts yeah. the sort of theological folklore about Mary Magdalene as the reformed prostitute. Um, but she says, think of Mary Magdalene going to anoint Christ's feet mm-hmm. and taking the extraordinary risk mm-hmm. of performing this ludicrous act of devotion mm-hmm. in front of people. And in effect says to her sisters, well, that's where you are. You mm-hmm. are taking the risk of performing a very extravagant and very incomprehensible act mm-hmm. of devotion in front of people. Mm-hmm. You are you may be enclosed nuns, but you are in effect walking through the streets of the city like Mary Maudlin, carrying your jar of ointment. Mm. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. It is. And I love, I think one of the things I love about Teresa of Avila is that she's writing about these profound things, but there is always almost a sense of lightness or of, of humor, you know, even the folklore about her, you know, that she'd be praying and she would be, you know, um, levitating and she'd say, put me down, Lord. Yes. Um, you know, and, and even in, I, I just, I, we, I just did a book club this last autumn on um, the interior castle mm. and um, the way that there's this, I don't know, there's kind of a, a self-awareness and a lightness and a playfulness and, and kind of a, she's self-effacing partially because, you know, she, she knows that authorities are watching her and she needs to be good. But I think also that there is kind of that willingness to be embarrassed both for the love of God and for the betterment of others. And, and I think, and it makes, you know, when you read Interior Castle, it's so relatable as, you know, perhaps too shallow of a word, but that sense that there's just this openness and this humility matched with this kind of fearsome wisdom um, that I just love about her, you know? That's right. That's right. Yes. She's, she's another person with a sort of deflationary wit. And uh, I've always loved the uh, the note she made on something that Saint John of the Cross had written. And she and she loved and admired Saint John of the Cross, and yet she can still gently make fun of him. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, which we all need um, from really. time to time. <laughs> oh well, I do hope that you. I do hope you write that play. Well, time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> time, yes. Um, but thank you so much for joining me to speak about these plays and. I just so appreciate your insights also into thinking about language and theology and trusting that with all of these words and these works of art we make, that there is something solid underneath that we can discover. And well, thank you so much. Thank you for giving 
such generous attention to, to these plays and for the opportunity to talk about it. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. And so honored to have you on the show. Oh, please, please. It's a delight. you enjoyed this episode of Speaking with Joy. You can follow along by subscribing to Speaking with Joy on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts for more content on theology, arts, and culture. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you again on Speaking with Joy.